Last week, we talked about love for brother and sister in Christ and how that is a mark of a true believer. And, and, and then in this passage, we're going to see uh, that, uh, that love for the Father marks a believer. So love for each other is a huge marker that demonstrates as evidence that we are followers of Christ, that we, are, that we know God and that we're walking in the light. And then in this passage, we're going to see that love for the Father is that. And, and in the passage last week, if you remember, uh, love for brother and sister was contrasted with hate. And he said, you know, if, if someone says, I, I, I know God, but he hates his brother and all this contrast... But tonight, what's a little bit different is that love for the Father is contrasted with love for the world. So when you talk about love for the Father, the opposite of the contrast that he uses is not uh, hate in that sense, but it's love for the world. Uh, and so we're going to be talking about that tonight. This passage has two parts. The first part lists John's various reasons for writing, but the focus, as we're going to see, is on to whom John is writing uh, he's writing to people who have been transformed by God. And then, and then the second part of the passage focuses on that dichotomy between loving the world versus loving the Father, because those two loves are absolutely incompatible, as we'll see tonight. And the, the two parts of the, of the passage work together to remind John's readers of, of who they are on account of the work of, of God in their lives and to warn them uh, that their love for Him is incompatible with love for the world. So, with that said, we're going to pick it up in chapter 12, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 12. And we're going to uh, start with a little, the first section, verses 12 through 14. This is what he writes. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, th these verses are normally understood as articulating John's reasons for writing. And that's understandable since they are structured uh, by this repeated formula. The first part, it says, I am writing to you be because, and he repeats that a number of times. And then later he says, I write to you because, and there's a little bit of a difference. There's a different uh, verb used there. Not all translations will bring that out. But he talks about, I'm writing because. But as we, as we look at this, upon closer inspection, it seems that John's focus is, is on who his recipients are and why he is writing, not just why he is writing, but why he is writing to them. That seems to be the emphasis. In other words, he's saying, I'm writing to you. And why, and, and this is why, because, and, and each of these, we'll call them because clauses, uh, each, each clause focuses on the spiritual state of John's readers. And he writes to them because of what God has done in their lives. And he wants to encourage them to live out their true identity as people who are loved by God. So I want to take just a couple minutes of first, just looking at the structure of this, because this is John writes in sort of a semi-poetic form. And, and, and so if you don't catch that, 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 he's that he's sort of being poetic in this passage, then it seems odd because it just seems like, like a lot of strange repetition. Uh, but there, there are two stanzas, as you can see there, with three couplets each. And the first three couplets begin with, I am writing to you, while the second three begin with, I write to you. Not all 
Not all translations will bring that out, but that's, that is there. And the, the two stanzas are, uh, stand in parallel with the addresses of each couplet repeated in, in the same order. So the first part, and you see it in the first couple verses there, he addresses children, then fathers, then young men. Then he repeats it in the stanza two, he addresses children, then fathers, and young men. And there's variation that occurs uh, in these clauses with each one indicating uh, something of the addressee's spiritual state. So he has those three things that are common. Then the variation comes in the second half. Um, so he says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on the account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And then stanza two. I am writing to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. And there are just structurally, and we're going to get into some more of the meat of this in a minute, but there are two parallels that are among all of these clauses. Because if you'll notice something that's, you know, it's just... Uh, if you don't understand that this is a poetic form, then it doesn't make any sense. But the middle clause, for example, where he says, I'm writing to you fathers, he says the exact same thing both times. He says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. So that's a parallel. And then the, 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 uh, the, the last couplet, the third couplet, both of those that are addressed to young men say you have overcome the evil one. Although in the second one, uh, it follows two additional lines in, in that particular clause. But we, we, we need not make too much of the parallels within the because clauses. It's what what a, the point of it is, is really the overall impression made throughout that, it, that is most important. The, these are people uh, he's writing to whose sins have been forgiven, who know the Father, and who've overcome the evil one. So who are John's, uh, uh, John's addressees? He writes to dear children, to fathers, and to young men. And there are three main views, three main ways about thinking about these classifications. And some commentators believe that these descriptions refer to literal age groups within the church. That's actually probably not correct uh, because, for number one, John often used the word children all throughout his passage to, re to refer to every believer in the, in the church, to every person reading it. And his comments also to all of the groups, they overlap. So he, you know, uh, uh, for example, he says to the fathers, he says, you know, the, the, the one who from the beginning. But then in the second couplet, he says to the children, you know, the father. And so there's some overlap there. So he's saying the same thing. So why would he be saying the same things to the different groups if there are other uh, uh, plus? And this is. Another thing, the order would seem strange if he were looking at them just based, based specifically on age groups because he doesn't go in chronological order. Why would he go children, then go to the fathers, and then go to the young men in between? So it doesn't seem to be that. And other commentators say that these classifications are just metaphors for different levels of discipleship or maturity. Well, there, there's no indication of that John was using metaphorical, metaphorical language here. Uh, the, and again, the comments overlap the different groups. 
And again, the same thing. The order would seem strange if he was talking about spiritual growth because you would think spiritual growth, we're talking about you're a child in Christ, then you become young man in Christ, and then you become a father, and, and, and they're not in that order. They don't go in any kind of progressive order. Now, the third approach is that John used these words and these phrases rhetorically to, refute, re, to refer to the uh, spiritual qualities that should characterize all Christians at any time. Whatever the age of his readers, therefore, John can say properly to all of them, your sins have been forgiven, you have known him who has existed from the beginning, and you have conquered the evil one. And so I, I, I think this is what he's talking about. He's just using these different phrases in a poetic way to say, hey, this is everybody, we all. Uh, he, he's referring to the entire church and saying, your sins have been forgiven. You know the Father. You know the one who was from the beginning. You have overcome the evil one, that all Christians should know that those things. So let's look at each one of these things, these different terms and the things that he says and see what we can uh, pull from these. And then we'll get into the more of the meat of our study uh, on the second part of the passage for this evening. But let's look at these terms. The first one is children. The term dear children has, has no reference to age, but he uses it constantly over and over again as a term of endearment uh, that John used for all those to whom he was writing. And, and where, where would he get this from? Well, you know, he was a the follower of Jesus. He walked on the earth with Jesus. He was one of the original 12. And, and we know that Christ used the same words when he was speaking to his disciples. In John 13, 33, he says, my children, I will, I will, be, I will be with you only a little longer. He's, so he's using the same phrase to those who are following him. And all who have believed in Jesus Christ as Savior become God's children. They're adopted as, into the family of God. And, and, and there are many, many who had come to uh, faith in Jesus through John's ministry. And so he called them his children as well. They were, in a way, his children uh, in the spirit. And, uh, and, and these true followers have in common the fact, the first thing he said to the children was that their sins have been forgiven on account of Jesus' name. Uh, now, we need to understand that a little bit because when we use that phrase, in our culture, it means something different. The Jews use the phrase, the name, in a very, very special way, a very different way than what we tend to because for us, a name... It's just simply that by which you're known. It's what you're called. It's what people call you when they want to get your attention, right? That's what it is to us. But, it, but to the Jewish mind and in Scripture, it stands for the whole character of a person, at least insofar as it, as it has been made known to men. And this was very common in the book of Psalms. I'll give you one example. Psalm 910 says, those who know your name will trust in you. Okay, now think about this. This clearly does not mean that those who know that God is called Yahweh or any other name of God, that if just because they know that, they will automatic, automatically put their trust in Him. What is he saying? It means that those who know God's nature, those who know who He is, they know His character. So the name is talking about the character of God and the, the, who He is, and, and, and those who know God's nature will be ready to put their trust in Him because they, they know what He is like and they know that He is trustworthy. So then John means here that we are assured forgiveness. Think about this. We are assured forgiveness 
because we know the character of Jesus Christ. We know who he is. We know what he's like. And therefore, we know we can trust him for our salvation. We know that in him, we see God. He said, he said anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. We, we know that we see in him sacrificial love. and We see in him patient mercy. We see in him grace poured out. Therefore, we know that God is like that. Therefore, because of that, we can be sure that there is forgiveness for us because and it really ties back exactly to what he said in 1 John 1, 9. Because if we confess our sins, he is what? Faithful and just. It's because we know who he is that we can trust him to forgive us our sin. Because he, this is what he said. He said, uh, he, he set the plan in motion. He sent his son, Jesus shed his blood and he put the plan in place and the, and the pathway of salvation in place. And because he said it and because he did it, we can trust him that it is real. Then he addressed the fathers. Um, and and he's, they, they, they are those who know Christ who is from the beginning. Now, here again, we use the word know in a different way in our culture than what the Bible uses it because to us, to know something is merely an intellectual activity. That's what we, that's what we think of when we say, I know this. We think of facts and figures and it's intellectual. It's an intellectual thing. But, but biblically speaking, this word into the Hebrew mind, this word to know God is to know him as a friend knows him. It's, it's, it's the same word that's used of a relationship of intimacy between husband and wife. You read in the Old Testament, it says, Adam knew Eve. Well, obviously, it says, Adam knew Eve, and then a child was born. Okay, that's obviously a lot more than intellectual activity, right? I think everybody here understands the, the workings of the birds and the bees, right? So we know that no means an intimacy, an intimacy of knowledge. And so to say that we know God is more than just saying that I have this increasing knowledge about God, but it means that a Christian, uh, you know, I mean, it means it doesn't mean that you're going to become an, an ever greater biblical theologian, but it means that throughout the years, as you walk with him, you will become more and more intimate with him. Then to the young people, uh, it, it, you know, when you talk about young people or young men, it, it, it has this picture of action. And he, he, he really ties that together. He says, you have conquered the evil one. Through the, and it's through the blood of Christ. Because all of these things are done. We're going to get to this in a minute. All of these things are done through Christ. He did them for us. We didn't do it ourselves. But, but one of the things I love about this passage is that he says, you have conquered the evil one. I love the fact, and I want you to pay attention. I don't believe there are accidents in Scripture. But notice that he uses a past tense. You have conquered. You know what that speaks of to me? That shows a battle that's already been won by Christ. It's not something that I have to wonder about. It's not something that I'm like, I'm fighting this battle. I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I have conquered in, 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 in fact, Scripture tells us that through Christ, 
I am more than a conqueror through him. And so, you know, we, we got to remember that there are battles all around. There are spiritual battles that continue to rage and they will continue to rage until Jesus Christ returns. There are battles all the time, which by the way, we get this, this notion that, that spiritual battles are always about, you know, prayer intercession. That is one form of spiritual battle that takes place. But every time you fight temptation, that is a spiritual battle that's going on inside of you. Every time you face a decision between doing something that pleases God or something that pleases yourself or pursuing the things of the world, every time you do that, that's a battle. So there are battles that are going on, spiritually speaking, all the time. But we have to remember that while there is a battle, we are fighting a defeated foe. We are fighting a defeated foe that gives us a different level of confidence and a different level of faith in dealing with these things. And we, we've got to understand that we're in a war zone and that we're constantly in a battle with the forces of Satan. Um, and that's an inesca inescapable fact for believers. And, and that means that we will need strength to hold, their own, hold our own. And this strength is available through the Holy Spirit. And that's what John says to the young man. He also said in the second part, he says, you are strong. And it's not because they have strengthened themselves. It's that they have been strengthened by God. And John wrote that the believers are strong and that the word of God lives in them. So the strength to overcome the evil one on a daily basis is not the natural physical vigor of young people. I'm, anybody remember the days when you had natural physical vigor as a young person? <laughs> it's, it's, for some of us, it's just a, a memory now, but... Uh, uh, but, but, but that's not what it refers to. And that's good news for me because I don't have the vigor I used to have. I don't have the physical strength that I used to have. I don't have the stamina I used to have physically speaking. But the good news is my victory in Christ has, it, it has no, none of those things have any bearing whatsoever on any of those things. But it's the power of God's word in us working through the Holy Spirit. This is what he says. We know this passage, and I love the way the New Living Translation translates it. It says, even youths will become weak and tired, and young men will fall in exhaustion. So it tells you right there, this is not about physical vigor that we have that we, in our bodies, because there are going to be times in life when life will just wear us out. So, so I got a real amen on that one. So it says, even youths will become weak and tired and young men will, will fall in exhaustion. But those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. And that has nothing to do with my physical strength. That is the supernatural strengthening of God in my life, in my spirit. Now it can be physical, you know, because like, you remember what uh, Elijah did? Anybody remember what he did? After, uh, after the, uh, he, he, he had the showdown on the, on the mountain and the, all the prophets of Baal were, were, were killed. And then Jezebel got mad. And after that big showdown, Jezebel got mad and said, by this, the end of this day, I'm going to do the same thing to you. And he got scared. But you remember, you may remember what he did. He ran ahead of a chariot. That was not because Elijah was Usain Bolt, you know, and was a world-class athlete. That was the spirit of God 
working in Him. And the same thing is that it happens in our lives spiritually. And we, as God's people, can enjoy this power. We can walk in victory over Satan. Uh, and, and we have, but, but we have to constantly guard against his assaults by becoming saturated with the Word of God. This is what we have to understand. How did Jesus battle temptation? Did he just, did he just say, no, I'm just going to be strong. I'm going to be strong. I'm not going to do it, Satan. He quoted scripture. This is, this is what, this is that there's power and strength in scripture for our lives. And, and we have to be saturated with the word of God. And we can remain, <clears throat> excuse me, we can remain strong only as the word of God lives in us. And, and there, there's, there are a lot of Christians, that, <clears throat> excuse me, I got something stuck right there. There are a lot of Christians that struggle in their walk with the Lord. And, and for many, many of them, I'm not saying every Christian, many of them though, it's because they are not in the word. More importantly, more importantly, the word is not in them. So as John writes to the children, fathers and young men, it's clear that, they're, that all of these groups, all of these people that he's talking to, their identities have been shaped by the work of God. God is the one who has forgiven their sins. God is the one who has enabled them to know him. And he is the one who has caused them to overcome the evil one. So the, 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 the point I want to make out of that is that this set of qualifying features are, are not self-determined, even, even though they require the believer's cooperation. And so John's very reasons for writing to them are due to the fact that they are recipients of God's transformative work. As, as, as we live the Christian life, this point is so important for us to remember. And, and what it means for us is it means that there is never a place for pride among believers. Even the most mature, godly, and gifted followers of Jesus cannot claim credit, credit for their achievements or their status. We have to know all of these things, this is, I think this is really the main point he's going to lead, trying to lead to is that all of these things that you enjoy have been given to you. They have been done for you. This is the work of God in your life. And the mature believer can take no more credit for their transformation than a beautiful butterfly having gone through metamorphosis. We can marvel at its beauty we can say we're, uh, we're amazed as we consider the butterfly's previous appearance as a caterpillar. And we say, I can't believe that became this. But we, but we cannot say, wow, butterfly, you have done such a great job at becoming so beautiful. That would make any sense at all, would it? Because the process of metamorphosis is not under the caterpillar's control and in fact, the final product is beyond its imagination. Truly, their, their final appearance is a work of art. A butterfly is an absolute work of art. But the caterpillar is not the artist. The caterpillar slash butterfly is the canvas that displays the work of the artist. So we are not the artists of our own beauty. We are the canvas. God is the artist. And, and when somebody looks at your life and says, man, I knew, I knew who you used to be. 
I can't believe who you are now. We can't stand there and say, yeah, I've done pretty good, haven't I? You know, and we can't be have, have false humility either. Even when people are like, oh, shucks, you know, I, I do my best. No, 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 no. We realize, hey, I'm, the, I'm just the canvas. This thing that you see, I can't believe it either. I can't believe it either. You know, he has, he has uh, transformed us from belonging to a world in rebellion against God with his lust and its pride. And it's, he's brought us into relationship with himself. He has forgiven us our ugly sins. He has given us true knowledge of our beautiful God. And he has enabled us to overcome the monstrous evil one. And, and John writes to such transformed people. And the transformation has been remarkable. And believers are identified by these beautiful, life-changing characteristics compared to their former selves as they are as different as the butterfly is from the caterpillar. Who I am in Christ now is as different as the butterfly is from the caterpillar to who I used to be. And that's true for every person in this room who knows Christ. But, but, but that's, while that is true, we can no more boast in our transformed state than can a butterfly. Marvel? Yes. Rejoice? Yes. Admire the beauty of another's transformation? Absolutely. But we have to remember who the true artist is and give him the glory. So John's affirmation of, of his reader's spiritual status here, it provides the, the backdrop for the exhortation that it's about to follow, where he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. Now, if verses 15 through 17 had not been preceded by verses 12 through 14, it would sound like John is chiding his readers for something they're doing wrong. But as it is, the exhortation that is coming reads as a warning so that they don't fall into love of the world. And it really seems to me, when you look at it and understand that he's talking about what Christ has done and reminding them of who they are in Christ because of Christ and not because of their own doing, it seems to me that it's a means to remind them that the natural response to that would be to love the Father. And this is how these seem to fit together for me. God is the one who has accomplished all of these things in the lives of John's readers. Therefore, they should love him and not the world. So let's go on to verses 15 and se through 17. He says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, this is a huge, huge scripture. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does. Now, you may have another translation, some translations, older translations especially, say the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Same thing. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Love of the world is absolutely incompatible with love for the Father. And this strong antithesis helps us to understand what John means by the world, because that world, that word that's translated world is in Greek, it's just a Greek word, cosmos, with a K. It's actually spelled just like we would spell cosmos, but it's with a K. And, and, and that, that word in the Greek is actually 
uh, capable of a variety of different kinds of meanings, including a neutral sense. And it's used at times in the neutral sense. However, John's use of the word is typically negative. In fact, not just here, but also in the Gospel of John. Uh, and if, if I remember correctly, there's only one place where he uses the word world in a positive sense, but even in that he's pointing to the fact that, uh, that, that we need God's help. So, but the world as used here does not refer to God's creation that God declared good and reveals his glory. So he's not saying that the, that the earth and all of the creation uh, that, that we can't love the beauty of the mountains. That's not what he's saying. You, you see, so he's not using the world in that sense. Nor does it refer to the world that, that God so loved that he gave his only son. Because it wouldn't make any sense for in John 3.16 for Jesus to say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then turn around and say, oh, and by the way, you better not love the world. So it's not used in the same sense. It's obvious that it's not used in the same sense. And, and in that sense, he's talking about the people of the world, that God, the humanity that he wants to redeem. Um, so for, for John, the world is the whole of humanity in rebellion against God. And the term world here refers to, this is a way to think of it, it refers to the realm of Satan's influence the system made up of those who hate God and hate, hate His will. So the world is the, is a, is the world uh, as influenced by Satan and the, and the corrupt systems and, uh, and, and, uh, that, that hate God and hate His will. So believers, when you're talking about the people of the world, be, believers should love the people of the world enough to share God's message with them. But... They should not love the morally corrupt system in place in the world. And by system, I'm not talking about just governmental systems and that sort of thing. I'm talking about we should not love uh, the, the attitudes of the world that rejoices and, and, and uh, uh, willfully, uh, gleefully participates in things that are against the will of God. So uh, Satan controls this evil world. He's the prince and power of the air. He is the prince of this world uh, for a time being. He has this time, but uh, his, his world opposes God and his followers, and he tempts those followers away from God and in his sin. So when we talk about loving the world then, I think the important question is, how do people love the world? What does that mean? What does that look like? That's an important thing to know. If he says, don't love the world, it's a good thing to know what it means. So, well, how do people love the world? They, they do so by greedily and selfishly loving all that it offers them, such as riches, power, and self-indulgence. And I think, I think those two words are really, really important for us to understand what he's talking about when he's talking about the world, but it's any attitude or system or, or way of thinking or philosophy, whatever you want to say, that, that is greedy and selfish, because that is the way of Satan. Uh, he himself is Satan, is very selfish and self-centered, and that's where he leads people uh, astray from God. Uh, but people cannot love both God and the world. And such loves are mutually exclusive. The, the, and the word for love here 
means taking pleasure in something. In this case, taking pleasure in that which is opposed to God. Now, now you begin to see there are many, many people in the world who take pleasure in things that are opposed to God. And in fact, now we're to the place where they not only do them, but they encourage others. And, and the evil is held up as that which is the ideal. That's the world we live in. That's what he says. You can't love the world that, that, that says it's all about me. You can't love the attitude and philosophy that says, I have to do whatever makes me happy. John wanted to show his readers that, that, the, that to attempt to love both God and the world would be as impossible as trying to combine light and darkness. Light and darkness cannot exist in the same place. It just can't. You know, if you go into a room and you turn on the light switch, you don't have half the room lit up and half the room stay dark. It's either the light's there or the light's not there. You can't have both. And God and the sinful world are such opposites that it is impossible to love both at once. Now, many people think they can, and a lot of people try to do so. They try to live with one foot in, you know, in the kingdom of God and one foot in the world. And, it's, and, and all they're really doing is fooling themselves. But do, now the question is, do these words mean that believers are to remove themselves from all contact with the sinful world? You know, are we supposed to just pull back because the world is such a sinful place and say, I, I can't have anything to do with it. I'm not going to love this world. I'm going to just step back and give. No, no, that's not what it means because it would be impossible, number one. But uh, number two, it would mean that we could not have any influence on the people of the world. And it would also mean that we could not fulfill Christ's command to go into all the world if we removed ourselves from all contact with, with the people of the world. That's not what it means at all. It means simply we can't fall into the attitudes that say my comfort, my pleasure, my wants, my desires are what really matters. That very selfish and greedy outlook. Now we read verse 16 and as I said, it is one of the most important verses of the Bible and it identifies in very vivid terms the weapons that the world uses to seduce men and women into joining its side. And amazingly, each of these weapons resides in us. The enemy really is within. You see, we, we, sometimes we like to blame everything on Satan, but you read James and it says that, that, uh, that we are tempted by our own lusts. That's, uh, the, the reason Satan is able to tempt us is because we have things inside of us that lust for the wrong things. Because, because uh, you know, like, listen... Uh, I'm going to use a really dumb illustration, but you'll probably remember it because it's really dumb. Um, if if I uh, if I if you try to tempt me uh, for a meal time and say, "Hey, Pastor Dave, I've got some alpo alpo from a can. I've got some dog food for for you here. How about it? You want some?" It is going to have zero temptation because I don't want it. I don't have, I have no desire for that. Right? See that? So the temptation is only effective if I have that longing, something inside of me. Now, on the other hand, if you came to me, and I think I know of at least one other person in this room that would be right there with me. Uh, if you came to me and said, Hey, Pastor Dave, how about some cheesecake? 
we got a whole different situation on our hands. See, because now you're tempting me with something that I really like. So the fact that I'm tempted by something tells me that there's something in me that likes what is evil. You see that? And, that, and that's the, that's the, uh, what I mean by this, that all of these things, these weapons are in us. These are the things that are wrong with us. The, it, it's the same three weapons that, that, that took out Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis 3, 6 says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, that's the lust of the flesh or the cravings of sinful man saying, I want, I want to consume this. Uh, and it says, and was pleasing to the eye. That's the lust of the eyes. It says, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. That's the boasting of what he has and does or, or the pride of life. She took some and ate it. So seeing this, that is from the very beginning and seeing how prevalent these temptations are, a close and careful inspection of each weapon will be helpful in our pursuit of spiritual victory. Because here's the thing, though they are old, as old as time itself, from the very Garden of Eden, they are still effective if we don't recognize and resist them through the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word of God. So the first one, the lust of the flesh or the cravings of sinful man, depending on your translation, it's going to be something like that. The, the desires of the flesh, the cravings of the flesh, appeal to our appetites. And desires, in this case, or cravings, that word is neutral. The, the, it's the object that determines whether such desires are good or bad. I could use the same word and say, I, I, I have a craving to know God. And that's a good desire. However, if it's a desire for sinful things, then, then we have a different issue. So, so the object determines whether the desire is good or bad. And John tells us that worldly desires are of the flesh. Now again, here's another word, like the world, can mean so many different things because flesh, the, the, the Greek word is sarx, S-A-R-X, uh, and, and it, it can refer to the whole person. It can refer to just the, you know, the flesh and bones, literal flesh and bones. But here it, it, it denotes, and this is how the Bible usually uses this term flesh. It denotes the tendency and the bent of humans to fulfill natural desires in a way that is contrary to God's will. So it's natural desires, sometimes even God-given desires, God-given gifts that we then desire. We have this natural tendency to, to want to fulfill that natural desire in a way that's contrary to God's will. For example, I'll give you two examples. Very simple. I think we can all get. Uh, sexual appetite, which is a, listen, sex is a God-given gift intended for marriage. But sexual appetite can give way to immorality. So that's fulfilling a natural desire in a way that's contrary to God's will. And, or, or another one, here's another one. This is one that probably mo, uh, in this room more of a struggle with this. Physical appetite can give way to gluttony. See, listen, here's what I believe with my whole heart. All, you know, all these th things in God's creation are good. And I believe that it was God's idea that when he took certain spices and to beget, put it together with certain meat and, and put it together with, with certain veggies and certain sauces and in a tortilla, that he said, behold the burrito. And when I take a bite of that, 
that is, a, that is just an expression of the creativity of God, that that flavor, that was God's idea. Uh, and so it's not a bad thing to have a physical appetite. However, if I, if I fulfill it in a way that's contrary to God's will, then I'm going to give myself to gluttony instead of giving glory to God and enjoying the meal in a proper way. So we give into the flesh, and here's the key. We give into the flesh because we are sinful. And it's very important, and this is going to sound strange to you, and it, and it may take you a little while to digest this, but it's important to realize that we are not sinful because we sin. Instead, we sin because we are sinful. We, are, we, we, we have this sinful nature. We have this fleshly nature. We have this bent in us towards sin that's already there, and that's why we sin. Uh, it's not that I was perfect and, and, uh, and I had no, you know, I was, I was ready to go to heaven. It wasn't that everything was perfect, and then all of a sudden one day I told a lie, and I just suddenly I have a sinful, now I'm sinful. No, I told a lie because that's already in me. That's why the temptation works is because of my sinful nature, because I have that, that bent in me. And that's where, that's where I have to have the power of Christ to find freedom from that, because I can't do that. So, the, the, and the lust of the flesh is powerful because we are sinful at our core. And to, to us and to, the, to people in this world, uh, sin is fun, it's enticing, it's attractive, and we're drawn to it like a fly to fly paper or like, to, or, or, or like a fish to a baited hook. And in any sort of selfish or greedy craving, uh, simply to satisfy one's physical desires in rebellion against God could be considered lust to the flesh. And, and, so, and that would include anything purely physical, exploitive, or self-centered. Then he, he goes to the lust of the eyes. The sins of craving and accumulated possessions bowing to the God of materialism could be placed in this category. People's eyes can lust after many, many things. Uh, Eve wanted the fruit that was pleasing to the eye. Achan, you remember in the, uh, when they went into the promised land, when they, uh, Achan saw the, the silver and gold and all of these treasures and he wanted them. Even great men of God like David he saw a beautiful woman bathing. He wanted her. And it's, it's true. It's, you know, we, we have a tendency to associate lust of the eyes with sexual thoughts or that sort of thing. But it's not just that. Because I can be at somebody's house and see a TV that's bigger than mine and begin to, begin to lust after that and want that more than I want God. Believers, we have to protect ourselves from the eye traps that are around us as much as possible and not become obsessed with what we see. We have to, when we look at things, we have to learn to be content. We have to look around us and, and, and when we see something, realize, hey, is, and this is what he said, we're going to get to this in a moment. Th this whole world is passing away. If I have the biggest TV in the world, it, what good is it going to matter when it's all said and done? And we have to have, change our mindset to this eternal perspective. And then the last one is the pride of life, or as the NIV, NIV translates it, the boasting of what he 
has or does. And, and some translations even actually translate this as pride in possessions. It's a kind of a difficult phrase to really get. Uh, but it refers to both inward a- attitude and the outward boasting because of an obsession with one's status and possessions. Have you ever known somebody that was just obsessed with making sure that everybody saw them in the best possible light and they, that they always had a be- better story to tell and a bigger thing to happen and all these sort of things? Well, this refers to the braggart who exaggerates what he has in order to impress others. You know, this, this is the I, me, my person. And pride of possessions or pride of life, uh, it speaks of a person who glorifies himself rather than glorifies God. And he or she makes an idol of their stuff, their career, their achievements, and their social standing. And that person fails to see that the Lord Jesus Christ has turned the value system of this world on its head. I read a quote from A.W. Tozer today that really draws our attention to this uh, blinding deception of the pride of, uh, in possessions. I want to read the quote to you before we move on. It says, There is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature it is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and fierce passion. The pronouns my and mine look innocent enough in print, but their constant and universal use is significant. They express the real nature of the old Adamic man better than a thousand volumes of of theology could do. They are verbal symptoms of our deep disease. The roots of our hearts, listen to this, the roots of our hearts have grown down into things and we dare not pull up one rootlet lest we die. Things have become necessary to us, a development never originally intended. God's gifts now take the place of God, and the whole course of nature is upset by the monstrous substitution. Powerful. Now, all three, as I said earlier, all three of these categories show selfishness and greed. This is the spirit of the world. Uh, People who focus on possessions, want whatever they see, and boast about what they have, show that they are of the world and not of God. These sins begin almost unnoticed in our, in our, within the heart, and then they lead to outward sin in people's lives. But the contrast of that, think about this, the contrast, God values self-control, a spirit of generosity, and a commitment to humble service. It's the opposite of these. A person who loves the world wants to experience any and all pleasures of the world, regardless of whom it might, might hurt. But a follower of Jesus denies himself and takes up his cross. See, it's the opposite. A person who loves the world wants to get everything he possesses, and he wants more and more and more. It's like the rich man who's somebody asked him, how much is enough? And he says, just a little bit more. But then a follower of Jesus is literally called to give himself away unselfishly. A person who, who loves the world wants everyone to know how great they are and they see themselves as being above others and above menial tasks. But a follower of Jesus humbles himself and washes the feet of those around him. That's the example of Jesus. People who love the world are focusing on a world that is already passing away. And, and we know that the workaholic will die unfulfilled. 
The greedy politician will die in despair. The pleasure-mad party-goers will find themselves ruined by drugs or alcohol. And that's, that, that's because, and this is what the world doesn't tell you, indulgence of our appetites, indulgence never satisfies. All it does is whet the appetite for more. That's all it does. It promises that if you get a little more, you'll finally be satisfied, everything will be good, but it's never enough. It's always, you always have to have more. This is, the, this is what happens with drug and alcohol addiction because it never satisfied, satisfies. It only whets the appetite for more and you're constantly chasing that. Christians, however, understand that this world will not last forever and that no one lives on this planet forever. And, and be, because of that, because we know that, we know that those who do the will of the Lord, Lord of God will live forever. So we have a contrast there. The world is passing away, but if I am a follower of Jesus and I do His will, I'm going to live forever in His presence. Um, and, and so it's foolish then to hang on to the world and whatever fulfillment, uh, temporary fulfillment at least, that it offers because the world is passing away. Here, here's so important for us to understand this, and it's so hard in America for us to get this. The world cannot give you what will last. It can give you nothing that will last. And to turn away from the sinful world and to hold on to God means to turn away from that which is passing away and to grab hold of that which is eternal. Every person will die, and in that moment, will forever let go of the possessions and pleasures of this world. So we have to learn to let it go early. Those who trust in God, we have to learn to hold on to our possessions loosely. We have, to ha we have to hold them in an open hand. See, here's, here's the problem it's in our culture especially. And this is, really goes back to that A.W. Tozer quote that I read earlier. when It talks about our, root, our roots growing down into things and, and we're afraid to pull up any rootlet because we will die. Is that we have these things in our hand and, it, and, it, and we have to understand that we have to live with an open hand. And, when, and at any moment when God says, hey, I want you to give that to me. The moment we close our hands and say, anything, God, anything you want, but that. I've just given birth to an idol. Because I've told God, that is more important to me than you. Whatever it is, my house, my family, my children, my bank account, my job, my reputation, my life. I have to learn to, to live my life with a loose hold on the things that I have. And in reality, we know that we will let them go. One day, if the Lord tarries, I'm going to die and I'm going to have to let go of everything. I won't have a choice. But we have to learn to let them go now. And why is that? It's because we recognize as a follower of Jesus, 
everything I have already belongs to him. It's already his. And knowing that this world will end, it can give you the courage to deny yourself the temporary pleasures of this world in order to enjoy what God has promised us for eternity. It goes back to the old saying, boy, if my girls have heard it once in their lifetime, they've heard it a thousand times at least. You pay now and play later, or you play now and pay later. And they're probably back there rolling their eyes right now. And it's the same thing is true spiritually, you know, that, that listen, if I, if I will learn to, to pay now in the sense that I let go now and let go of it early, then, then I'm going to find some freedom in this world and I'm going to enjoy what God has promised me for eternity. But if I, if I don't deny myself, if I continue to hang on to these things, then I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to really face some difficulties when I stand before God because he's going to say, why did you love these things more than me? You know, one of the saddest stories in the Bible concerns a man by the name of Demas. He's not very well known, but his life serves as an important and tragic lesson for those of us who love the Father. But we first hear of Demas in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. And in that passage, we're told that he is working hard for the gospel alongside Luke. He's listed among nearly 10 others for their faithful service to Christ. This is a servant of God, a man named Demas. We do not hear of, of him again until 2 Timothy 4.10, which was, it was toward the end of Paul's last letter. There's the last letter that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy, as Paul anticipates his own execution and martyrdom in, for Christ. And this is what we read about him in 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas has deserted me because he loved this present world. He went from one who was working hard alongside Luke for the cause of the gospel to one who deserted Paul because he loved the, this present world. The NLT says he loves the things of this life. You could almost feel Paul's heart break as he pens those words, as he says, I hate to tell you this, Demas has forsaken me because he loved the things of this world. Let's learn from the unfortunate story of Demas. Don't, don't let love for the things of this life eclipse your love for the Father. And, and don't let a love for the things of this life cause you to chase after that which is fleeting and passing away. And I'm saying, listen, I'm not saying there's, there's nothing wrong with having things. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a house. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a good meal. But I'm just saying, just understand, those are all side issues. And if they're all gone tomorrow, you still have Christ. That's what matters. Let, uh, l love the Father. Love the Father with all your heart. And I want to close with this because the, the, what we tend to do is we say, don't love the world. And, and we focus on the negative in our minds as humans. And we say, I'm not going to love the world. I'm not going to love the world. I'm not going to love the world. But that's not the key. The key to not loving the world is to love the Father. That's the focus. How do we grow in our love for the Father? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Not how can I discipline myself? How can I make myself not love the world and the things of the world? The, the focus is how can I grow my love for the Father? I want to illustrate it like this. I, I'm an Abraham Lincoln fan. I, I'm, a, I'm a history geek. I'm a, I'm, I love history, which I know that makes me a geek, but I don't care 
because I got an attractive wife, so that's all that matters. So I win. So um, anyway, uh, but I love Abraham Lincoln. Fascinating, unbelievable man in history. And in, in Doris Kearns Goodwin's biographical work, called Team of Rivals, the political genius of Abraham Lincoln. She writes that, that often people who had been opposed to Lincoln eventually turned toward him and sometimes even grew to love Lincoln. The, the most obvious reason for this ch change of attitude toward him was that they got to know him. And a strong example of, of this change in attitude is, is Lincoln's Secretary of State. His name was William Seward. Anybody remember that name from history? William Seward was Secretary of State under President Lincoln. And now, what you may not know, if you don't know the history, is that before Lincoln's presidential nomination by the Republican Party, Seward was a far more famous uh, man than Lincoln. Far more famous. And, and, and he was uh, certain to win his party's nomination, and, and he was understandably shocked and upset that this relative, relative, relatively unknown hick from Illinois had somehow stolen the nomination that Seward thought was rightfully his. Well, in spite of Seward's animosity toward him, President Lincoln, after he was elected president, he appointed Seward as Secretary of State. Now, for the first year of Lincoln's presidency, Seward remained opposed to Lincoln. Isn't that interesting that his own Secretary of State was opposed to him? Uh, and in fact, he believed he took the job because he believed the common mis misconception that, that Lincoln was a dull, ape-like fool. And in fact, he contented himself to believe that he could effectively run the country by manipulating Lincoln as his puppet. Well, nothing was further from the truth. The turning point came when, to, to Seward's shock, he realized that he had been outsmarted and outmaneuvered by Lincoln, who knew what Stewart thought of him, and, and he knew what he was trying to do. And, and the first thing that changed when that happened was that Seward's respect for Lincoln changed. He realized he was dealing with no dull-witted hick, that Lincoln was very, very sharp. Well, Lincoln held no grudge, but he forgave Seward for his arrogance and his duplicitousness. And, and over the months and years to follow, Lincoln and Seward actually developed a very close friendship. Lincoln would spend countless evenings at Seward's home talking by the fireplace and they were just enjoying each other's company. Seward's allegiances eventually changed to the extent that this man who thought he was a fool and thought he could just use him like a puppet who, who was opposed to everything he was, suddenly his allegiances changed to the extent that he would frequently and publicly say that Lincoln was the greatest wisest man he ever knew. Well, on the night of Lincoln's assassination, the conspirators, conspirators that you may remember, also attacked Seward in his home. He survived, but he was rendered unconscious for several, several days. And when he woke, lying in his bed, he, he realized by himself that Lincoln must have been assassinated. There were two things that led him to that conclusion. First of all, the flag at the White House was raised to half staff because he could see it through his bedroom window. So he knew something was, was, was going on. And the second thing was he knew if Lincoln was alive, that, that he knew that he would have been by Seward's bed waiting for his friend to regain consciousness. And since he wasn't there, he put two and two together and he decided he must have been killed and after receiving confirmation of Lincoln's death, this man who had once been an enemy 
wept for two days. Here's an example of a man's allegiance turned around. Seward had been Lincoln's adversary. He did not respect him, like him, or care for him in any way. But after getting to know Lincoln, and after experiencing his forgiveness and his wisdom and affection, he developed a great love for his friend, President Lincoln. All that to say this, to know God is to love him. Remember that old song? To know him is to love him. Well, this is the one person, when you're speaking of God, that that song is true. As we grow in our knowledge of him, so too will our love grow. And I'm not just talking about intellectual knowledge. I'm talking about intimate knowledge. As I get to know him more through his word, through prayer, through walking through the valley of shadow of death, through going through life together with him, constantly walking in faithfulness because we have faith in the God in whom we serve, that all of these things that are, causes our love to grow and our allegiance shifts from the loves of this world to the love for our Heavenly Father. And since they are in opposition, it would not be possible to love both the rebellious world and to love God. Thus, if we do love the world, John sees this as evidence that we do not yet have love for the Father. But anyone who struggles to let go of his or her love of the world, the answer is to focus more on the Father. Let us meditate on his forgiveness. Focus on his mercy. Reflect on his love. Get to know him better. Walk with him. Talk with him. Read his word. And as we get to know God more fully, our affections will follow. To know Him is to love Him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for what You've done in our lives. And Lord, as we recognize that we are the canvas, You're the artist, that God, in response to that, the only thing that makes sense is to love You. And as we get to know you, Lord, I pray that you would lead us into greater intimacy. And, and the, as we get to know you, that our love for you would grow that much more. Exponentially, God, let it grow. And Lord, as we love you, the more we love you, the easier it is to let go of things of this world. So lead us to that place. Help us to love the Father and to let go of all the things of the world and all the false and empty promises of the world and cling to that which we know is eternal. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.